Warning, Mombies will discuss information regarding true crime or other topics that are spooky in nature. This may be offensive to some listeners. For more information on the potential trigger warnings in this episode, please review our show notes and be cautious when listening. I'm Beth. I'm Christina. And I'm Holly. And we're the Mombies. That's a great question. Weird. Just just absolutely strange. How do you even do that? I feel like that's gotta mean something. Something. Hello, spooky humans. Welcome back to another episode of your favorite podcast, Mombies. <laughs> I'm Beth. And I'm Holly. Um, before we get started, uh, I got a message from a listener saying that something I said on an earlier episode could be taken offensively by our Native American listeners. Um, I don't remember which episode it was in, but I called David Rose on Shit's Creek my spirit animal. Uh, and, and I didn't realize that that could be taken offensively. And I just wanted to apologize if anyone did take offense to that st- statement. I am very sorry. I didn't. I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to hurt anybody. So, and I, I just didn't realize. Um so thank you so much to the listener who let me know and thank you for doing it kindly i really appreciate that um so yeah so we wanted to address that right away i know it's been a little bit since the episode aired. right we're always ready to right the wrong absolutely so i I promise i will do better and if that happens again please let me know because i i try my best but you know we all make mistakes so uh i've already lost my train of thought it's probably a bad thing so uh, okay so on a lighter note we have a new patron the beautiful and incredible mrs cheyenne skaggs has joined the mommy outbreak thank you baby girl uh we love you I think we're we're really popular with that Skaggs family. I don't know what that's about. <laughs> they just love us. So they just much. love, love, this, love this crazy stuff. So uh, they're twisted just like us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so now that we've taken care of business, um, this episode we're not going to do a lot of chatter. We're kind of going to jump right into it because I have a lot of information for you guys. I just could not stop with the research. So um, today's episode. We will be taking a look at a case from the 1920s that has inspired four movies, including one of my personal favorites, Murder by Numbers. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> so I have literally uh, forgotten that this was about Murder by Numbers or linked to that like 15 times where Beth will tell me what it's like, oh, it's the movie. We love the movie, Murder by Numbers. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm so excited. And then a few days later, I forget. So she's, she's gotten excited. It's it's <laughs> She's like excited over it. Like it's brand new, like 17 times. It's great. It's and I'm like, oh, wait, yeah, I, I, I knew that. I knew that. <laughs> I, was, I was just making sure you remembered. Um, so if you don't know and you haven't seen the movie, I highly recommend it. Yes. It's awesome. Um, it has uh, Sandra Bullock, Michael Pitt, and the absolutely dreamy Ryan Gosling. And it's young Ryan Gosling. Oh, yeah. That's like one of his, like his first big one, or I think, anyway, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't remember all those, but. Uh, so, Holly, what's your favorite Ryan Gosling movie? Ooh, um, Crazy Stupid Love. Oh, that's a good one. I like that's that one really a good. lot. My favorite is. his shirt off. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, right. She's like, are you airbrushed? <laughs> She's my favorite. She's, She's my favorite. Fucking incredible. Emma Stone, if you're listening, you can also be our best friend. We're your friends. Um, She's definitely weird. Yeah, enough. I think yeah. I think she would enjoy. We're, we would, would be podcast. We'd be lots of fun together. We would be. We should hang out. It would be so much fun. <laughs> um, so my favorite Ryan Gosling movie is um, Gangster Squad. Okay, that's a good that one. It's a really mm-hmm. good one. Um, and it's also got a fucking incredible cast, which, you know, is my thing, which you guys will see later because I mentioned another movie later on while we're talking about this. Uh, so how about Sandra Bullock? What's your favorite Sandra Bullock movie? Oof. Put you on the spot. Oh, I don't know. What's your favorite? I'll have to think about that for it's a second. A hundred percent the heat every time. With Melissa McCarthy? That's really That's good. I, I know what my favorite one is. Oh, right. what's the name? She's in it with Ben Affleck. Oh, uh, Forces of Nature? Yes. No, that's a good one. I love... She's so good in that movie. She's he's I mean, so good, she's, too. They're good in all the movies. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I like the heat. Uh, I just think, first of all, I have been told by more than one person that I remind them of Melissa McCarthy, which is like the height of compliments, I feel like, to me, because she's fucking hilarious. And if you don't like her, you're wrong. You... <laughs> You are wrong. I mean, there's not, this isn't an opinion. It's a fact. You are incorrect. She's amazing. So I figured out after Bridesmaids, Tony Mm -hmm. told me that um, when they're on the airplane Mm -hmm. and she's sitting next to the flight marshal, um, that that's her husband. Yes. And I didn't know that the first time I watched it. So then when I watched it the second time, I'm just dying laughing because I'm like, oh my God. He's in the heat too. He plays like one of her ex-boyfriends and he's like obsessed with her. And she's like, okay. (laughs) Oh my God. She's fantastic. So we live with my brother for a little while. I will say this and then we'll shut the fuck up and start getting in the story. But so we live with my brother for a while, uh, who I'm close with and he better be listening if he is or not. But, um, and we would quote that, like he would walk in the door and be walking down the hallway and yelling quotes of the movie to me. And then I would be in my room at the end of the hallway yelling them back because it's a great movie. So throwing it out there. If you haven't watched it, watch that one too. Just put these on your list. Don't be like Holly. Actually watch them. But put oh them my on gosh. <laughs> but I do. I'm, I'm the, the hypocrite. I'm like, oh yeah, I'll watch that. I never do. But then I tell Beth to watch them and then I'll be like, did you watch it yet? Did you watch it yet? <laughs> uh, I try. She usually gives me the like, you haven't seen that movie, and it's like a big blockbuster movie that everybody's seen. And then I'm like, wait, you haven't seen this random obscure movie from the 80s? <laughs> right. so, you know, I've never heard of that in my life. Right. She's like, who the fuck are those people? I don't know never, any of those people. Right. And I'm like, you know, they were in that one movie that one time. Anyway, are you ready, Holly? I'm ready. Okay. So let's head back to the 1920s. Uh, According to history.com, the 1920s were a time of dramatic social and political change. In the United States, more people were living in cities than on farms for the first time in the country's history. The country's total wealth more than doubled from 1920 to 1929. Suddenly, Americans were faced with huge societal changes. Automobiles were an affordable luxury. Women were becoming freer. (laughs) That's changed this year, but you know, whatever. Um... We'll talk about that later. Um, and people had more money to spend. Prohibition began in January of 1920, and it lasted until the end of 1933. So that's also happening in the background of this story. We don't talk about it a lot, but it's, it's there. Okay. Uh, society during this time assumed that if you were wealthy and intelligent, you were respectable and morally sound. 
Okay. You just automatically just, were given this level okay. of respect and trust. So we're going to prove that that's not fucking true today. So it's time to introduce, introduced, introduce. <laughs> it's already starting and we're fucking seven <laughs> minutes in, guys. Uh, it's time to introduce the people we'll be discussing today. Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb. So I've shown Holly pictures of them. Uh, if you want to pull them up, it might be a good idea. Go to our Instagram and check it out. Uh, we'll so be see, amazed. You'll be amazed. At how much, especially, Richard looks like Ryan Gosling. Wow. Yeah, they did a real real good job. Good on you. Uh, and the, the movie does not take exactly from the, the this episode, so you can watch, listen to the episode and you'll be okay to watch the movie. It won't ruin everything. Um, so Nathan Leopold was born on November 19th, 1904 the youngest of three boys to Nathan Sr. and Florence Foreman. Nathan Sr., one of the wealthiest men in Chicago at the time, was a millionaire box manufacturer and the owner of the Morris Paper Mill in Morris, Illinois. Nathan Jr., also referred to as Babe, I'll pretty much just refer to him as Nathan. Um, I I didn't want to get too confusing with that, Mm -hmm. but if you see other stuff about them, sometimes he is called Babe. Okay. He was a sickly kid. He was described as having a number of glandular disorders that they think may have worsened his psychological issues. But as I researched further into these issues, and we'll talk more about this in the next episode, I I found that it was partly a ploy by the defense to kind of blame the crime on something other than him being a horrible person. And then it was partly also the science of the time. So around this time, medical knowledge was advancing rapidly. And according to Edward Tenner's article, The Original Natural Born Killers, endocrinology was a powerful topic and was receiving the blame for crime at large. So if you were, you know, robbing banks, it was blamed on whatever in your glands. Okay. Um, We'll we'll get further into that, like I say later on, because, you know, defense strategies and stuff. But I felt like it needed to be mentioned here as we're talking about him being a sick kid and stuff. As for Leopold's particular biology, his, his, I don't know if this matters to anybody else, but I thought it was kind of interesting. His pineal gland had calcified prematurely, which affects melatonin production and can affect your sleep habits, which would make me a crabby psycho for sure. Yeah. Uh, he had signs of thyroid ab- abnormalities, which if you have thyroid issues, which I do, you know, it, it affects everything in your body. It affects your body temperature, your memory, your energy levels, your metabolism, your heart in a variety of ways. And the list just keeps going on. Um, His skull had formed in an unusual way that may have crowded his pituitary gland, which causes possible issues like anxiety or depression, and his sex glands indicated an abnormally high sex drive. Oh. So we've got a lot happening in this this guy. And I assume this means like an overproduction of testosterone. It didn't really go further than that, but I didn't didn't see that. Uh, And it said, uh, oh, so it's also possible if they didn't find this from his glands... Uh, they, but from his descriptions of his thoughts and behavior, which we'll, again, we'll kind of talk about, um, maybe this was connected to depression or anxiety, which also attributes to hypersexuality or to childhood trauma, which we're going to discuss here in a few minutes. And I'll kind of give you guys a warning when we're getting ready to talk about it in case you don't want to hear that part. So Nathan is also said to have had an IQ of 200. What? Right. <laughs> so to, to put that in perspective, well, I'm, I'm like, is that a thing? <laughs> So to put it in perspective, I tried to find the IQ scale that would have been used then. Um, And the two classifications that are closest to this, like during that time frame, are the 1916 version of the Stanford Binet or the Pintner 1923 classification. 
Um, so the Stanford Binet deems an IQ, this is the original Stanford Binet, deems an IQ of 90 to 110 as average, so just your normal person. And anything above 140 is near genius or genius level. And he's at 200. How is that even on the scale? <laughs> Crazy. Um, the Pintner deems 90 to 109 as normal, so right in the same range, and 130 and above is very superior. I would like that. <laughs> Please. Oh, I feel like I would not. At 200, have you seen the movie that has Scarlett Johansson? And she like becomes... Oh, no, I have not. The everything? I, yeah, I, I have not seen it. I know what we were thinking of. I don't know what it's called, but... Lucy. That one. No, I have not. Uh, yeah, I don't... Um ties in there i feel like 200 the more you can he probably can use more percentage of his brain yeah i feel like people are born that way also yeah it's the way everything got wired yeah um so i mean most classifications are pretty close to those same numbers so i think it's safe to say that if his iq was 200 which of course i don't i don't know where they got that from i haven't seen the test but he he was a genius uh so that makes sense According to his baby book, his first step was taken at three months. What? His first words were spoken at four months. He said, nine, nine, mama. Like, no, no, mama. Uh, And he'd recited his first poem at age three. At age five, he tried to learn the word for yes in every language. Now, obviously, as as you heard my uh, co-host, uh, not believe that if you have children in your life or you know anything at all about child development you're not believing half of what i just told you uh i can buy the yes in every language but if you think about it if his iq really is 200 then it is not out of the realm of possibility for his brain to have accelerated what he needed to do just by watching somebody walk around True, but I don't think his body could. I mean, have you ever met a three-month-old whose body was capable of doing anything even remote? Like, I've seen three-month-olds that can't even hold their head up, much less rolling can yeah. be a struggle at three I mean, months. Anthony so. held his head up pretty good about two weeks. He I was mean, early, I mean, so quick with that, I think, but. too, it's because... Uh, they're watching also i don't know that's good it's it's highly unlikely but thinking about the 200 i'm like (laughs) i feel like i I can buy the the yes in every language Mm -hmm. because i there are kids that that do that or just you know kind of latch on to something with an iq of 200 i I could see him kind of latching on to that thing or whatever and then the first poem at three i mean you're talking about a three-year-old memorizing something Mm-hmm. My three-year-old memorizes shit all the time that I'm like, how the fuck do you remember that? So that's really, it was really just seven words. You hear a poem and you're thinking like he's fucking reciting, you know, the Raven or something. And I, it was not that. It was seven words strung together. Obviously, he memorized them. In German, it was, I am small, my heart is pure. So it, oh, okay. so that's that's reasonable. Yeah. Um, stringing three words together at four months old, though. <sighs> That seems real unlikely. I mean, I guess it's possible. Possible. I mean, look at now. Even now, you you can you see twelve year olds, you know, going to college. That's the, true. You, these, you know, that's a very good point. We'll save that idea for a little while. <laughs> uh, <laughs> look at this bitch over here reading my mind. So, um, so, but so, so I think stringing words together at four months old, three words together, that's probably a bit much. Mm-hmm. Taking steps before most babies can roll over. 
I don't, I don't know that I'm buying that. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, he was real smart and whatever. Whatever. I mean, doesn't really matter when he walked. No, it does not. So Nathan did, however, discover an interest in birds early on that developed into an alarming series of red flags for any true crime aficionado. Uh, he would hunt birds and have them stuffed by a taxidermist, which isn't that unusual by itself. Okay. Lots of people have animals stuffed and they keep them as trophies. However, by the age of 19, Nathan had close to 3,000 specimens that he had killed and a few he'd kept and gutted himself. Oh, where did he keep these? Like in his own place where he it's, lived? Yeah, it said something about like a special drawer or drawers that he kept them okay. in. But how many? You, you said thousands. That three thousand. Well, the specimens, I guess, were probably on like a shelf or something, maybe, or on shelves. Oh, specimens. Okay, I'm yeah. thinking when you mean specimen, like the whole fucking. Oh no, the bird. Gut, like the gut, the, the gutted and, and stuffed birds. I, he had three thousand specimens, but some of those, like probably, I'm guessing not that many. I didn't see a number, but he had like gutted himself, <sighs> which seems. You know, but there are there are a lot of people that do. I mean, people that like they hunt deer and then they gut it themselves, and they my nephew and and my brother in law. I mean, they hunt and then they do all the shits to the fish or the duck or the whatever. You have a point there, but if you have bird guts, it's disgusting. My nephew would be like, "You want to come out here?" I'm like, "Absolutely not." Right? No thanks. No thanks. No. um, so he, he remained an avid bird watcher and even published two scientific papers in the AUK, which I think it said was now called Ornithology. Uh, it's the, it was the most prestigious U.S. journal for professional ornithologists at the time. Wow. And this, this is when he was like a teenager, like 18, something like that. Uh, I, I tried to find if that was still the most prestigious paper and I don't even fucking know where you go to find that. <laughs> But I did find a ranking on the Water Thrush blog from 2019 listing journal impact factors, and ornithology was number one there. And I Googled the most prestigious journal for ornithologists, and the AUK was listed as number two. Okay. So I would say it's still, at the very least, pretty high Mm -hmm. up there. So this love for birds does come back to play later on. In school, Leopold was teased for being bookish and unathletic. He had been sent to an all-girls school at age six to help cure him of his interest in boys or his disinterest in girls. I'm not entirely sure which oh, one. To cure him. Yeah, right? <laughs> Ooh, and we're in, right now, we're in the 30s. The no, we're, no, we're in the 20s because no, 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 no. he was born we're in, in 1900. We're in the, like, 19 Yeah, we're in the 20s. Yeah. Early, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so the book Midwest Maniacs by Tom Baker says that sending him to the school didn't, quote, cure him of the femininity which embarrassed his family. Ew. Quote, right? Gross. Uh, there are days that i get frustrated and also i'm real fucking glad i don't live in the 20s that's nuts so um i did want to point out though that that book has some information that is completely different from other sources i have so i don't know if that part's 100 percent accurate or not okay um, what I do know is that more than one source did say that he was sent to a girl's school around age six, and it would stand to reason that it could have had something to do with his interest in boys or disinterest in girls. Seems strange at six, but... What an odd uh, choice to make. So like, you know what? We'll fix this. We'll just send you with a bunch you're, of girls. You're what? girly. Let's send you to hang out with the girls. That'll work. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's going to backfire. Okay. Um, 
I also got the sense that he was teased for being rich and probably also for being Jewish. Uh, Candace Fleming's book, Murder Among Friends, says that the kids called Leopold names that he recognized as dirty, but he didn't actually understand them. So they didn't list what words. So They stole his pocket change. They Ugh. pushed him down, and they even forced him to eat grass because, let's face it, kids can be dicks. Fuck kids. <laughs> Fuck. Why? Um, Nathan spent much of his childhood with his governesses. One of these women was Pauline Vandenbosk. There seems to be a little bit of confusion about where Pauline fits into the picture. The Chicago Tribune reported on June 4th, 1924, that Pauline had stated she was Nathan's governess for two years from 1916 to 1918, which is, he would have been like 11 to 14, somewhere in that, um, Murder Among Friends calls her Paula instead of Pauline and says that she quit when Nathan was around age six. Mm. So there's a pretty big gap there. Um, I think that's probably more likely. The 11 to 14 doesn't really fit. Lastly, according to an excerpt from the Hulbert Bowman report, which is the defense psychiatrist report from the trial, and I will be quoting that a whole lot. Yes. Uh, Leopold said a, quote, little Irish Catholic, Catholic girl named Paula end quote was his governess for about six months around age six so that makes okay. more sense it also states that the next governess was the last which means the dulce, the dates that pauline or paula gave would be incorrect because she wouldn't have been after her she was before her so uh, more than one source says paula spent her time teaching nathan who was jewish about the gory deaths of the saints nathan was fascinated by these horrific tales especially the story of the crucifixion oh my gosh he later said Quote, the idea of nailing anybody to anything appealed to me greatly. Yikes. She apparently quit after Leopold took his gun outside to shoot a bird. Now, remember, she quit when he was six. No. So he took his gun outside to shoot a bird and almost shot a, you know, they called her a nurse, but I'm thinking like another governess uh, at a nearby home. So oh. he almost shot a grown woman. Oh my. So when Paula or Pauline scolded him, he was basically like, yeah, I don't give a fuck. Oh, and you're like, okay. And then she was like, I quit. <laughs> Your son's a psycho. Um. So Matilda Wants became the new governess, and she was the governess from when he was 6 to 12. Thanks for the heads up, Pauline. Right. Oh. Uh, so nicknamed Sweetie by Nathan, she appeared to be modest, hardworking, and respectable. And she was granted free reign of the household as a result. I would be locked in a fucking tiny cupboard. <laughs> <laughs> You would be a damn sight better governess than this woman because behind closed doors, she was twisted and perverse. No. When no one else could see, she would slap and pinch Nathan. She even blackmailed the little boy, convincing him to steal stamps from another little boy and then threatening to tell his parents if she didn't do what he said. Oh, my God. Yeah. I, I feel like because of who he was later, did he deserve it? Was this like pre karma? I mean, like I, we know you later in life are gonna do some fucked up shit, so we're gonna fuck your shit up when you're a kid. I mean, you could look at it that way. I would, I would probably tend to look at it more like she fucking created this monster mm -hmm. because what the fuck? My God, having an adult do like, oh my God. I don't know. Anyway, her behavior also got worse than that. So here's your trigger warning. Give you a second to skip ahead. Uh, I would say probably like a minute should do it. 
Okay, I've skipped ahead. <laughs> you have to listen. Uh, so Sweetie was also sexually abusing Nathan and his older brother, Sam. No. Please note, at the time, the wording would have been, as I'm getting ready to say, however, we don't live in the early 1900s, and I want to make it very clear. An adult doesn't have sex with a minor. That is rape. Children cannot consent to sex with adults. Period. This was not sex. It was abuse. I hope that makes it abundantly clear how I and I feel like I can speak for my co-hosts feel on this matter. Abuse. Okay, so done. Uh, According to the book For the Thrill of It by Simon Batts, there was gossip among the other maids that Sweetie was having sex with Sam by the time he was 17 and with Nathan by the time he was 12. Oh, she quit working there when he was 12. So I would assume it happened sooner than that, but I don't have, a, you know, confirmation of that or when it began, if it, if it did happen. Uh, however, she bathed with them. She took them into her dressing closet and encouraged them to examine her body. She rewarded good behavior with naked wrestling on her bed. Stop. No. Uh, The report states that, quote, there seems to be an unconfirmed idea that Sweetie would encourage and permit Nathan to use his penis on her by inserting it between her legs while she was lying on her face and he was lying on her back. Dr. Harold Hulbert, one of the defense psychiatrists, said that, quote, many of the things she did to him have been forgotten or repressed, which makes a lot of Mm -hmm. sense. Nathan described the abuses he endured factually without expressing his own emotions about the situations. These would continue until Nathan was 12 when his mother caught Sweetie dumping a sick Nathan out of his bed. So like he was laying in bed and she just like fucking knocked him out of bed somehow. And his mom walked in and caught that. That bitch got fired. You bitch. Um, And he still was like he was sick with a fever and a cough. Like not like he was just laying there not feeling good. So Florence fired Sweetie right then and I think never learned about the sexual abuse. Mm. You got yours. I'm sure. Right. Uh, Nathan was lost without Sweetie, who had taken the place of his mother in his own mind, which is its own kind of twisted hell, because she was abusing him. Um, Nathan also had fantasies that we need to discuss that he referred to as his king slave fantasies. According to most sources, including the Hulbert Bowman report, Nathan would imagine himself as a slave that saved the life of a king who was forever grateful for Nathan's services. The king would then offer Nathan his freedom, which he would refuse because he wanted to serve the king. If the king wanted someone to fight for him, he would always choose Leopold, Nathan, who would always win the fight. Whether it was one opponent or hundreds, Nathan would come out on top, always ending up chained back at the king's feet. Although some sources said these fantasies started when he was about nine, the Hulbert Bowman report attributed this to seeing his older brother, who it says he idolized, in his military school uniform when Nathan was only five. Okay. So I can see where that started. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it states that the uniform really impressed him. The idea of having an army to command was very appealing to him, which makes sense if you know any five-year-olds. <laughs> the report goes on to say that Nathan approximated that he was the slave 90% of the time, though he would angrily deny this later, saying that the doctors were mistaken. I did notice that later on in the file, it states that as Leopold got older, he began putting other boys he was attracted to into the fantasy, stating the patient continued to consider every boy who appealed to him as eligible for the part of slave. Okay. So that makes me wonder if they misunderstood it, misunderstood it, or if they were just trying to make these part of a narrative. Right. But I don't, I don't really know for sure. And I haven't gotten into that part yet because there's a lot here. So, um, 
the, the Leopold and Loeb files book has much more detailed descriptions of these fantasies from the actual report. If you're interested and I highly recommend reading it. It's very, very interesting. And it has like, uh, pictures of all the files and letters and all this stuff that's part of this case. So in 1915 or 1916, the Leopold family moved into a new home in Kenwood where the neighborhood was a mix of Jewish and genteel or not Jewish families. This was not common, as Jews were not allowed to live in many Chicago neighborhoods. I was thinking that when you were talking about the dates. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I was going to ask that. Uh, here, Nathan would attend the Harvard School for Boys, which had other boys from rich families unlike his last school. They were a mix of Jewish and gen- Gentile boys there as well, so you might think that Leopold fit in better or found a place where he belonged. You would be incorrect. He was teased for being too short and too smart, and two interested in birds. Geesh. They called him Flea and the Crazed Genius. Okay, I mean, I'm gonna give him, I could probably take that second one. I don't think I want to be called the Flea. I'll take Crazy Genius. I'll take Crazy Genius for fucking sure. <laughs> uh, everything I read said that he felt inferior and worthless. Oh. And as a result, he focused on his intellectual superiority, which we know he must have had in spades. Uh, as we've discussed, none of us are psychologists or psychiatrists, and as such, are not qualified to make a diagnosis, not to mention that even if we were, we'd never met this guy. So, uh, However, I, I thought it was really interesting that it was saying that he kind of developed this defense mechanism where he saw himself as superior um, because he actually saw himself as inferior. Mm-hmm. And it just reminded me of true narcissistic personality disorder, which I think is really interesting for that reason. Um, it's often, you know, you think a narcissist is someone who's in love with themselves, but that's, I don't think actually the case. It's more about how they feel inferior. So they put on this show where they think they're above you. Right. And you know, this, this comes out of trauma. I believe I I didn't get into the, um, DSM five to look it up, but I believe I have read that there before. So I just thought it was very interesting you know that that's something that narcissists do and it's actually born out of trauma and then here's this kid kind of doing that same thing doesn't mean he was a narcissist necessarily Mm -hmm. but um tendencies yeah exactly so just it was just an interesting thing to me so after skipping his senior year at the harvard school for boys leopold attended the university of chicago okay so he's he skipped his senior year i was gonna say feel like you would uh skipped a little bit more school with an iq of too hundy yeah you you I, I you know i don't i don't know why i don't have all the dates and stuff in here i thought i did and i must have missed them um he he was real young okay so i i think i talked a little bit more about his age later and stuff but apparently i'm i missed that part in there so now that we have nathan kind of at present day for our story we're going to talk about his partner richard Loeb, also called dick or dicky because he was a dick with a small dicky <laughs> Was born June 11th of 1905, the third of four sons to Albert Loeb and Anna Bonin or Bonin. Albert Loeb was the vice president of Sears Roebuck and Company, the biggest mail order business in the U.S. at the time. Again, we're talking about an enormously wealthy family here. To give you an idea, let me read you the description of their home. Oh my gosh. Quote, stretching across three lots... Its grounds held a greenhouse, a tennis court, a nine-hole golf course, and a fish pond. It also described the household help, which included maids, gardeners, valets, chefs, and chauffeurs. Maids. Maids. 
Uh, I read that Albert Lowe was worth over $10 million by 1920. I feel like I've made a mistake in the life choices I have made. Well, you're going to have a hard time working for Sears Roebuck and Company today. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, In today's money, that $10 million would be over $170.9 million. Oh. So they had a little Just a tiny bit of money. Just just a little bit. Some pocket change. I want some money. So we talk... (laughs) (laughs) I'm so depressed. (laughs) It's Okay. We'll have money. Fucking frozen pizza. And- <laughs> I would only eat Farachis. That's it. That's all, that's all every the day. I would if if I. I don't had- mean that was all I'd eat. I mean that's the only pizza I would. Okay. Eat. Yeah. yeah. So I, if I had that much money and I had to like pick a thing, it would be a chef. I would oh, have yeah. a live-in yeah. chef. Like I'll fucking clean my own shit. Like, but mm. I would have a live-in chef. I'll if cook- I had to pick one, you gotta pick one. I'll cook my own shit. <laughs> you cook your I'll- own shit. I just want somebody else to clean this. shit. Okay, so you're getting. A maid. I still have toddlers though. So okay, yeah. I mean, so I'll figure that part out. But like, have somebody like cook good breakfast and yeah. like, yeah. yeah. I want chef. Mm-hmm. I want it to be like three a.m. and I'd be like, you got some. You're like, I want a chef, and I'm over here like, I just want to go to the grocery store and not have to add up what I'm buying. That's it. I just just want to go, I can buy Kraft and not even consider the cheap brand. That's what I I want. That's it. Life goals, motherfuckers. I mean, there's other things I want, but I'll settle for that I would like to buy the Kraft mac and cheese, please. (laughs) (laughs) Ha ha, bitches. I'm buying this Kraft shedded cheddar. I'm buying this Valvina. <laughs> my favorite hold on i need a drink of water because that was funny now i'm dying <laughs> ah, excuse me okay so we talked a bit about nathan's health but there really wasn't that much about richards uh they did say he had chest pains or angina pectoris which is caused by coronary heart disease apparently okay uh, otherwise it seems like his health issues are just like normal kid stuff uh the report even goes deep enough to mention when he got his first pubic hair and that he first had sex when he was 15, so we needed to know that. All but right. I just thought I'd share, because we talk about fucked up shit here, so here we go. So like his future fellow fuckhead, Richard had a governess to care for him. Her name was Emily Struthers, and she worked for the family from the time Richard was four and a half until he was 15. Struthers was strict, and she expected Richard to follow her every word at every moment. Her goal was to turn him into her, her idea of the perfect boy. She read him Dickens and Shakespeare, went to school with him to consult his teachers, and even asked for extra homework and advanced lessons for him. Okay. She's described as a disciplinarian, but in the Holbert Bowman report, it is stated that while her discipline was always swift, it was also mild and, quote, she never used corporal punishment. I don't really feel like that's that strict, but maybe it was. Right, especially uh, for that time. Right. But I mean, I, she wouldn't really let him do much, so maybe that's it. I don't know. Uh, it does, however, go on to say that he believed, quote, she was very strict, and although she was never brutal or used cor- corporal punishment, her punishment was fairly severe and always prompt. So here's his example. This is the only example that it listed. When he was seven and didn't wait for her to pick him up for school and like ran off to play, he was put to bed in the afternoon for punishment. Oh my god! <laughs> what a horror! Oh, look, the horror! I haven't, the horror. I, haven't, I haven't been grounded much, but I feel like that's pretty mild. That's pretty. And you ran off, so like, if I didn't know where you were, you're lucky I didn't karate chop you in your jugular, like, right? Put you to bed early. Strict. What? Yeah. 
You sound like a spoiled bitch. Right. Right. That's what this sounds like. He was absolutely a spoiled bitch. Um, so Murder Among Friends states that Loeb felt like he was Struthers' prisoner because she wouldn't allow him to play after school like the other kids, which I don't blame him. That would feel mm-hmm. pretty shitty. Uh, instead, she encouraged him to read and to work and to study. Mm, that's so, a hard one. You have to be able to balance that better. Right. So, I, I mean, I feel like that's trauma, but mm-hmm. also, like, come, I mean... Nathan is literally being abused in his home, and you have to read. <laughs> Your older you will be thankful. Also, I do feel bad for both of them as children, but fuck yes. the adults, so I, yeah. you know, I don't know. Um, it, and so instead of letting him go play, she encouraged him to read and work and study. However, the Holbert Bowman report says he preferred her company to going with the boys, and that was a quote. So again he preferred her company but he hated her or whatever and thought i don't know i'm just like oh so i don't know how much of this is again you know this is what really happened and how much of this is oh let's blame this woman yeah. for what i did and oh look it's obviously her fault yeah. i couldn't have done we it. know our minds get fucked up and when we really right. i mean we're just like begging for acceptance them right. you know that person accepting us so yeah. even though he's like i hate you but right. that's true so I'm not really sure. And like I say, we, we'll talk about that stuff later, but I don't know. Um, it also blames her for Loeb progressing through school so quickly, which we'll talk about. Uh, he apparently believed that was a mistake for him to go through school so fast. And he states that, quote, I think she was so anxious for me to develop, to develop in the type of boy she wanted that she overdid it. Uh, Loeb attributed Struthers' authoritative discipline authoritative discipline to his discovery of lying he would make up stories or lie to escape punishment probably the most important example of this was lying about what he read at night she expected him to read only what she deemed quote quality literature so he would lie rather than tell her that he was reading mysteries about criminals okay he would sneak out and buy crime magazines which if you've listened to the murder squad podcast and if you haven't why haven't you do it Right. Uh, Paul Holes has said numerous times that these were popular for murderers because they held images of women like tied up and in scenarios that were kind of arousing to these kinds of guys. Uh, So all of this, especially the fact that Struthers never picked up on the lying, led to Richard viewing himself as this like master criminal. (laughs) Kids are dumb. (laughs) He began fantasizing about committing crimes like arson or bank robberies. Around age 11, these turned into real crimes, starting with shoplifting he was caught twice and was only sorry he got caught, admonishing himself because a master criminal would be too smart to get caught. Sounds like he was able to lie to the shopkeepers and he avoided his parents or governess from finding out because he was a spoiled little shit. Ugh. He was so advanced in his studies that he began high school at age 12. Oh my gosh. Struthers determined that Richard would graduate in only two years which his teachers felt was a bad and potentially harmful idea for him. They felt there was no reason to push it or rush. What would a 14-year-old do in college? He wouldn't have anything in common with other students. Struthers ignored all of this and and pushed him away. He just kept on pushing. I mean, I feel like even if you did it slower, you would not you still would not have anything in common with any of your peers. Absolutely. You'd be on this totally different level. Oh yeah. A 14-year-old mm. in college with I mean Grown-ups is probably a strong term when you're in college. Mm. <laughs> At least when I was in college, it was anyway. But, I'm sure that 14-year-old was probably smarter than all of those right. adults. Smarter, but my gosh. Uh, 
he so her pushing paid off and in the spring of 1919 a month shy of his 14th birthday Loeb graduated high school mm. he started Sheesh. at the university of chicago at age 14 but according to murder among friends he struggled with his work getting all c's in his first quarter oh i can't find anything that lists his iq only the comment by his teachers that he was not a genius so I don't, I don't really know what that means. Right. And how do you get where he was? I mean, mm. hard work definitely, but he had to have been smart enough to, I mean, he had to have some capacity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe he had a, an IQ of 120 instead of fucking 200, which is ridiculous. So I don't know. Struthers resigned after being assigned to care for Loeb's younger brother and being unhappy with the change. She just wanted to keep taking care of him and his parents were like, hey, he's too old. He doesn't need you anymore. The report states that she encouraged Loeb to take her side against his parents, but then states she tried to make him love his parents more than he loved her. So I feel like that's pretty contradictory of each Mm -hmm. other. Uh, The whole thing, again, felt very much like they were trying to put the responsibility of Richard's actions on her. For example, the report mentions a lunch the two had and the time leading up to the murders. It's suggested that Loeb's only interest in Struthers was a passing one because she'd been his governess, but that Struthers behaved like a spurned lover, upset that a boy she loved hadn't grown into a man that loved her back. Oh my gosh. Uh, It also states that she made a scene and expressed sexual delusions of persecution with no further explanation about the scene or these delusions. The report even states that she, quote, did not say that she loves him and wants him to love her, nor that she is jealous of the girls, nor jealous of his relations, but it is obvious. How does it get two women to take care of him that are fucked? Who? Him? Yeah. He only has one. That was all the same woman. So he had one governess the whole time. The other fucked up one took care of the other guy. Oh, okay. So okay. we just have two. But okay. I mean, and, and I absolutely think that what Nathan went through shaped who he was. I feel like they're just trying to blame this other woman who, yeah, okay, she was strict, fine, but they're saying she never hit him. Like, she didn't do anything that I feel like would be tra- traumatic or right. or damaging. I just feel like they're just saying, obviously, it's these bitches, you know, whatever. Um, they did, they talked about, like, how, what the, the clothes they wore and how that made them, you know, whatever they it made them. I don't remember exactly what all it said, but talked about that or it talked about, all kinds of different stuff like that that I'm just like, you're very clearly trying to blame these women. Mm-hmm. It's, but it's definitely the feeling I got, which like I say, there's a lot of detail here, so I, I couldn't go into too much about it, but I highly recommend reading all this stuff because it, it was definitely a thing. So, so we have a basic understanding of who these shitheads were. Now let's talk about how they met. In June of 1920, both young men were students at the University of Chicago. Nathan Leopold would be 16 later that year, but at that time, both boys were 15 years old. Oh my gosh. In college. In college. Both were also members of the Campus Club, a social organization. Now, Nathan wasn't really about the social scene, but he was aware that it would be smart to make connections that might later advance his career. He was, after all, a genius. Richard was all about that social life, though really it sounds like he kind of looked down on his social circle. What he really loved was being the center of attention, which makes sense when you Mm -hmm. consider his upbringing and how his governess had just focused completely on him. Again, the Murder Among Friends book, which I quote a whole lot in this one, uh, says that no one ever provided any solid intel on how these two became friends, and honestly, no one understood it. On one end, you have the good-looking, popular, charming Richard Loeb, and on the other, you have the serious, studious introvert Nathan Leopold. But the two did have some things in common. Both were Jewish and had rich daddies. Both lived in mansions less than three blocks from each other. 
Whatever it was that brought them together, by the end of that summer, they were completely devoted to each other. Wow. They would sneak out at night to hang out, Nathan taking his red Willis Knight sports car by releasing the brake and coasting the car out of the driveway before he started the engine like he was Corey Haim in that <laughs> 80s classic, License to Drive, which if you haven't seen it, you should make tonight a movie night and watch yep. it because it's one of my favorites. When Nathan would arrive at the Loeb house, Richard would be waiting at the end of the driveway for him. The two would hit the town, drinking and dancing and hitting on women. Nathan wasn't really that interested in women. He believed women were inferior, because fuck him. And we discussed already with his Kingslave fantasies that he was attracted to men. Keep in mind, this is the early 1920s. Same sex acts, same sex sex acts, oh, that was hard, were seen as perversions. And while I couldn't find the actual laws listed anywhere, laws made homosexuality illegal. One could receive jail time, aversion therapy, or even lobotomy as punishment. Oh my gosh. Fuck. Although it was obviously incredibly dangerous to come out of the closet, at some point, Nathan admitted to Richard that he had a big fat crush on him. In turn, Richard shared a secret of his own. He longed to be a criminal. (laughs) He stole money Um, from... That's not really the response (laughs) I was looking for. No, but... uh, he, He stole money from friends. He shoplifted. Of course, the two accepted each other fully, which, while they fucking suck, is a rare thing to find. Now, here's where we get into that philosophy degree of Nathan's. And this actually is like almost directly from uh, Murder by Numbers. Nathan explained away Richard's desire to be a master criminal with his philosophical belief in Friedrich Nietzsche's Ubermensch or Superman, which is basically someone that is so exceptional that he's bound by neither law nor morality. Richard liked this outlook because it's really easy to like something that gives you permission to do whatever the fuck you want to do. That night... When they told each other these secrets, the men had sex for the first time, and Nathan would later say it gave him, quote, more pleasure than anything I have ever done. And at this point, we didn't know that he was gay or bisexual. or Right. We, and, and we don't necessarily know that now. Right. Um, we'll talk about more stuff later, but he dated women. I don't know if any of it was interested in women or if it was all just, you know, a show to yeah. protect himself. I'm, I'm not really sure. I may, I may have an answer next, next week. I'm not sure because <laughs> I still have a whole other episode to do. So the two ended up applying and being accepted to the University of Michigan. There they lived together in an apartment. One night while they were in bed together, a law student named Hamlin Buckman that was working for the Loeb family that summer opened the door and saw them. (gasps) Oh, no. Yeah. So he quickly left the room, leaving Leopold and Loeb in a fucking panic. They were terrified that this would ruin their lives if it came out because it would ruin their lives if it came out. Nathan later admitted that the two contemplated killing Hamlin, even gathering supplies for the murder that they thankfully never committed. Hamlin, however, believed that the two had tried to kill him and had failed. Let's see what you think. A few days after he caught them in bed together, they invited him to go sailing. Nope. (laughs) Nope. I'm sick that day. Absolutely not. Oh, my God. You'd have to know. That's going to have to be. I'm not even done yet. They just went sailing, Holly. What if they're just going to go fishing and come back and he's just paranoid? You don't even know. It'd have to be completely obvious. Hey, you want to go sailing? No, I do not. That TikTok sounds like nobody's going to know. They're all going to know. Nobody's going to (laughs) know. So while they're out on Pine Lake, Richard asked Hamlin, do you swim? (laughs) Which Hamlin said, no. And these assholes flipped the boat and fucking swam away. (laughs) 
Nah, it was an accident. <laughs> what assholes! So they were probably shitting their pants a few minutes later when Hamlin, who had swum to the store, swam, sw- swum did to the shore. I don't even. I can't even talk. But he made his way to the shore. Swim, swim, swim. Right. Got out of the water, soaking wet and pissed off. He clarified that he knew how to swim. He just didn't like to swim. <laughs> <laughs> they apologized profusely. Oh, it's just a joke, man. <laughs> <laughs> but Hamlin was not buying it. You tried to kill me. Do, do you think they tried to kill him? Oh, they fucking killed yes. <laughs> As soon as I thought that, like as soon as you said he turned around and walked out, in my head I was like, oh, they killed him. They fucking killed him, <laughs> for did. sure. He did. <laughs> so he went to Richard's brother, Alan, who at eight years older than Richard, so like in his early 20s-ish, uh, often stepped in for their dad, and he told him the whole story. How could even the back then people can't mind their own fucking business? <laughs> I mean, I mean, if someone tried to drown me, oh, the drowning like, part. I thought you meant them together oh, part. The I'm drowning. sure he told them that part as well. Because, bitch, if you tried to drown me, I'm telling all your shit, yeah, all of it, everything. I'm not sure if he did or not. I'm, we'll see. I don't know. I don't remember. <laughs> this is a lot. So, um, so Alan had a talk with Nathan and Richard, and they charmed him into believing the whole story was bullshit. Because fucking pricks so they said he made it up and was probably trying to blackmail the Loeb family because he worked for them so they think oh he's trying to blackmail us hamlin was fired on the spot and nathan and richard just kept on being dicks oh my gosh so now hamlin attended the university of chicago where they don't go anymore and when he got back to school he told motherfucking everybody what (laughs) happened (laughs) once richard and nathan realized that this rumor was making the rounds they were furious they wanted to get back at hamlin now you did <laughs> that's it we're killing you but also we just realized we're too fucking stupid to kill you so um uh, they since they didn't go to the same school they kind of dropped it thinking it's just gonna end there we don't go there anymore who gives a shit so richard went back to the university of michigan before nathan who came down with scarlet fever keeping him back for a few weeks when he finally made it to school richard was cold and distant he avoided Nathan in public and in private, rarely Aww. coming home. When Nathan couldn't take it anymore, he confronted Richard, only to learn that Bachman's rumors had made the rounds at the University of Michigan as well. The two agreed that they needed to cool things off and act more distant in public. Plan was to spend less time together going out, and if they did go out, they should behave more like acquaintances than best friends. That's so sad. It is sad. Um, but Richard was still cold at home, too. Murder Among Friends suggests that Richard's feelings were far less intense than Nathan's. The book states that Richard told people he'd gone, he'd only gone along with the sexual aspect of the relationship because he was curious, but that sex with Nathan had become abhorrent. Nathan, on the other hand, admitted that he was even, quote, jealous of the food and drink Richard took because they came into closer intimacy with him than I could ever hope to reach. Oh my goodness. Unhealthy. Right. So we just have this one who's uh, good looking and everybody wants him and he's full of himself. And then we have this other one who is just his little lost puppy dog. Mm -hmm. So Richard joined the Jewish fraternity Zeta Beta Tau. Uh, For reference, at the time, Jews were barred from joining most fraternities along with African Americans, Asians, and Roman Catholics. Oh my gosh. According to Jess Schwab's article, A Brief History of Greek Jewish Life, many Greek organizations had, are you ready, Aryan-only clauses, Mm. 
or outright discluded non-wasps from the recruitment process. So I had to look up the actual definition like, what the hell? of a wasp. I knew what it meant, but I didn't really know what the acronym stood for. So the acronym is White Anglo-Saxon Protestants, or basically the white upper class that basically rules America today and, and since forever. What? So basically, if you weren't... I just said basically three times basically. in a row. Holy shit. Uh, if you weren't rich, white, and Protestant, you weren't invited to the party. Wow. So for my like 12th movie reference, uh, this episode, <laughs> uh, this very much reminded me of a fantastic movie called School Ties, which is set in the 1950s. She's shaking her head at me and I'm so sad right now. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's an, got an all-star cast. It's got Brendan Fraser, Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, Cole Hauser, which people know him from, uh, he's in that show now. He's a fucking cowboy in it. And people always share the memes of him and I'm like, okay. Uh, Chris O'Donnell, Anthony Rapp, Amy Locaine, and there's some other people in it. The, the basic story is that Brendan Fraser gets accepted into an elite prep school on a football scholarship, but he has to hide that he's Jewish from his friends. Okay. So I'm doing the air quotes because friends. Um, so add it to your watch list, revisit it if you've already seen it. It's a really good movie. And Holly, I have it, so you can watch mine. Yes. You probably also have it. But <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm pretty sure it's on that wall out there. So uh, so Richard fit the mold for this Jewish fraternity quite nicely. But even though Nathan also fit those basic criteria, cri- criteria, criteria, he wasn't a very likable guy. As we've already discussed, he'd become condescending and cocky to shield himself from his bullies. There were also those pesky rumors about his sexual orientation. Meanwhile, Richard, as described in the PBS documentary American Experience, The Perfect Crime, was... Are you ready? Tell me that Ryan Gosling wasn't perfect for this guy, aside from looking at him. He was, quote, a dazzling human being. He was the kind of human being that when he walked through a room, the molecular energy changed. You couldn't help looking at him. He wore clothes incredibly well. He had a flashing smile. He was dazzlingly handsome. Like, okay. Seriously. <laughs> so good. Could you have picked another fucking human that fit that better than fucking Ryan Gosling? Oh and I'm a Gerard Butler girl, but oh my gosh. Oh, they Butler. have it. Jerry, call me. Oh, please. Please, 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 please. I know he's in a relationship, but I'm still holding that hope. We are also in relationships, so it will be fine. You can just go back me, to doing your regular your scheduled programming, okay? Just, I just need... Can, can I just be in your five, please? You're in mine. I'm just throwing it out there. Sure thing. Uh, anyway. It's allowed. Sorry. Is that, do I sound like Nathan talking about Richard right now? Is that what it is? I sound horribly desperate. I don't care. I don't give a shit. Hunter, I am. I'm so desperate. Um, Richard's frat brothers agreed to accept him, but only if he stopped hanging out with Nathan. Oh. And faster than the fucking flash, Richard dropped him and moved his happy little ass into the frat house. Hmm. Prick. What a turd. Not that I like Nathan, but I'm just like, fuck you. How dare you? (laughs) So it shouldn't be a surprise that this was devastating for Nathan. That October, he also lost his mother to chronic nephritis, a kidney disease she'd contracted while pregnant with Nathan that had affected her health ever since. So Nathan felt immense guilt. Of course, it was not his fault, but... You know, that's how it works. Speaking as a mother myself, I do feel confident that given the option to not have Nathan and not have kidney disease as a result, his mother would have done it all over again. So that needed to be said. 
Right. But still, these events rocked Nathan's faith and made him decide that he must cut out the emotional side of himself and focus on the intellectual intellectual side. Oh. So at the end of his spring semester, Nathan transferred back to the University of Chicago. The following school year, Richard and Nathan barely saw each other. Nathan dove headfirst into his studies, excelling in all of his courses. He also joined clubs and made friends, attended parties and dances, and even went on some dates with girls. But he was still hung up on Richard Loeb. At a study group while discussing the ideas of Nietzsche, Nathan told the group that Richard was a Superman. His friends disagreed, especially one in particular named Andy Merrimont, who knew Richard. He argued that Richard wasn't that intelligent and was a liar (laughs) and a cheat. Nathan couldn't accept the truth about his friend, and Merrimont said Nathan was, quote, totally gullible as far as Loeb went. I'm so sad. In 1923, Leopold became the youngest graduate in the history of the university at the age of 18. Holy my God. With a degree in philosophy and a fluency in nine languages. Though according to Leopold's statements to police in 1924, he had studied 15 languages and was fluent in five. Oh my. I'm not fluent in one. (laughs) Obviously, neither am I. I got a few French words and I can speak some English. Uno. Dos. That's that's, like five. And like other languages, though, like I can, I can, if I thought about it, uh, come up with several sentences and lots of words in right. Spanish, but uh, literally maybe five words in other languages. Oh, I, shit. I can, I can sing like entire songs in French. What? Um, yeah. We'll, we'll be uh, uh, be making an episode on this. There's Celine Dion, so we will not make an episode of me singing. Oh, Celine yeah. Dion. Everybody write in. You want it. You're going to ask for it. These microphones don't want to hear me hit that pitch. I'll be breaking glasses. It'll be bad. That's okay. We'll we'll bring in old glass. You got Only this. Only plastic in this room when Beth's singing. Uh, I, can all, I can speak it as well. I can't speak it as well as I can understand it. I can pick up on it pretty well, but... Um, I can I can speak it, but not not fluently for sure. That's good. So when we go to Paris, you'll do the talking. Oh yeah, I can say a few things. <laughs> I can I can tell people. I can describe myself. <laughs> I can do all the things. We got this. Bonjour. <laughs> <laughs> you know that you sounded like. Why did you just tell me your hair is brown? I don't give a fuck. <laughs> Who the fuck cares? You just sounded like. Um, Winnie from Hocus Pocus. Oh, did or whenever she, they go into the school and they're listening and they think they're going to find the kids and then they go into the thing and it's like, bonjour. <laughs> I was once told that I don't have an accent when I speak French. I don't know that that's true, but that's what I was told by my teacher. So. Also, Hocus Pocus 2 is coming out. Fuck yeah. And I am throwing a fucking party. Yes. We're all going to dress up as well. Well, and we're going to do witchy uh, stuff. I can't stuff. think of the word. What's the word? We're going to do uh, witchy rituals, rituals and potions. What's the word I'm looking for? Spells? Spells. spells. We're going to do spells. Oh, my God. I do have another movie reference here. <laughs> We get it, you guys <laughs> like movies. Movies on the fucking brain. We're gonna go back and listen to this and say, okay, you we talked what? about seventy-two movies in that episode. But Tony's really gonna appreciate this episode. <laughs> it should be his first one. <laughs> so while Nathan was building this beautiful life, I mean, he's going out and being social and doing all the things he should have been doing 
thankfully at least he's not staying home being sad richard's facade was fucking falling apart good he was drunk all the time and his friends were catching on to him being a lying piece of shit mm-hmm. stealing and his underlying cruel streak an example of this was during freshman initiation current members had their own paddles which they would use to strike new members on the asses everyone would go easy on the new pledges except for richard Loeb. he would hit them so hard that he would send them flying one of those pledges said, quote, what a miserable son of a bitch he was. <laughs> and basically, he was O'Banion in Dazed and Confused. Mm-hmm. That's my <laughs> There's another movie reference. You're welcome. If you don't like it, tough shit. There's more. It's who I am. There's probably at Wait, least three more. Wait, there's more. more. <laughs> Maybe that movie. No, I don't have it. Oh. I don't have it. Scream. But this- wait. There's more. Oh, that is the movie. You're right. Oh, that's a good movie. I still need to watch all of those. I haven't even seen all of them yet. Anyway, okay. So, Richard wasn't a part of any clubs. I know she's like looking at me and I'm like, let's just keep going. Uh, Richard wasn't a part of any clubs or sports and his grades were just normal. He took a course load of easy classes and graduated in only three and a half years, right before his 18th birthday as the youngest graduate of the University of Michigan at that time. I couldn't find whether these two were still the youngest to graduate from their universities, but I did find that in the nearly 100 years since, since there have definitely been younger college graduates. Then again, you still have to factor in like changes in, this, in the system, mm-hmm. the addition of college credit courses, which I doubt were a thing in the 20s. Um, but yeah, they were both the youngest at the time, at least. In the fall of 1923, Richard signed up for one class at the University of Chicago where Nathan was taking four courses at law school with plans to transfer to Harvard, like legit Harvard, the following school year. Then here comes Richard. Isn't it just like an ex to stroll mm-hmm. back on in and fuck everything up? So anyone that's dated the bad boy knows exactly what Richard did. He just waltzed back in with that look and that charm, and Nathan let it all go. He begged Richard to pick back up on their sex life, and Richard did. But he would later say, quote, the actual sex is rather unimportant to me. Okay. Fucking asshole. (laughs) What was important was that he had a partner in crime. That's what he cared about. As long as he kept Nathan on the hook, Nathan was happy to play the slave to Richard's king. Ugh. I mean, I guess if that's what you fucking like, then there are... That makes me so sad. There's lots of subs. There are lots of people that won't treat you like shit. I mean, I guess back then maybe there weren't. Maybe people just sucked. I don't know. Uh, So the two were quickly back to their old antics of sneaking out and getting drunk. But now they upped the ante. They began throwing bricks through the windshields of unsuspecting lovers. They even threw a brick through the window of a drugstore. They were shot at multiple times as they made their escape. Next, they attempted to rob a family friend's wine cellar. The plot failed because the door was locked and they couldn't pick it. (laughs) well genius iq level we were talking about in the fall of 1923 they stumbled onto the fact that the key to richard's mom's car fit other cars of the same make so they escalated into grand theft auto after a car chase and a crash the two moved up to arson setting at least three buildings on fire what right right next it was burglary with the two men driving to the zeta beta tau frat house You'll remember that because it was Richard's frat house. And sneaking through with weapons, stealing everything they could get their little fucking hands on as the frat brothers slept. Oh my gosh. 
wild. Through all of this, the, se- the men's sex life had slowly lessened and Nathan couldn't take it. He confronted Richard about this and Richard suggested that they strike a deal. For each crime the pair committed, they would have sex one time. One for one. They even gave it a code phrase for Robert's sake. So when Richard used this phrase to make a request, hey, come steal this from me with me, you know, for Robert's sake. And Nathan did whatever was requested. The men would have sex. Oh, my God. Nathan agreed. And the two determined that this agreement would last until June 11th of 1924, when Nathan was set to leave on a trip for Europe. Oh, But I mean, I guess it makes sense. Like you're also talking about the fact that he can't come out to anybody else. Mm-hmm. He's got this person who knows that he's gay. He's in love with this person, obviously, or infatuated with this person. That's not love. But, you know, he's and and that's where he can get that that from. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like you can't just go tell somebody else you're going to risk right. that. He can be really life. who he is. Yeah. So with the issue settled, Richard explained his next criminal plot. He wanted to commit the perfect crime. One that was so complex and executed so well that the police would never catch them. They would kidnap someone rich for ransom money. Nathan knew full well that the penalty for kidnapping was death, and he told Richard he wasn't comfortable with the risk. Richard was confident they wouldn't be caught and said they would obviously have to kill the victim. I guess Nathan didn't consider that the penalty for murder is also death because <laughs> the reward was sex. So he was like, nah, let's do it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. That's fine. I can't kidnap somebody. All right. We're going to kill him. Let's, fine, let's do this. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Not even for Jerry. Uh, <laughs> they planned their crime for months. It was risky to kidnap a girl because people kept a closer watch on them. So they decided on a boy. I, I saw like this. I, one of the books was talking about like them talking about, um, um, just talking about Nathan wanting to assault the girl. And I'm like, it doesn't make any sense. He wasn't, he, was, he wasn't into girls. So I, I don't feel like that was true. It was the only place I saw it too. And I was like, I don't think that's correct based on this. I mean, he sucked, but maybe a, maybe a power thing. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Um, or maybe, you know, maybe if he thought it would make Richard excited, maybe. That could be a thing, I guess. Um, but like I said, it was the only place I saw it, so I don't really think that was necessarily true. Um, so, but who? Who would they kidnap? They discussed killing their fathers or a few of their peers. Uh, I think they talked about one of their little brothers. But they realized it would be wiser to kidnap someone smaller and younger than they were. Nathan typed up the ransom note on a typewriter that he and Richard had stolen from the frat house. Richard purchased a chisel and some rope, while Nathan purchased a pint of hydrochloric acid and a pint of ether. Ether? Either. Either is the right one. Yikes. Finally, the day arrived. May 21st, 1924. The pair rented a car and took it back to Nathan's house, where Nathan asked his chauffeur, Sven England, to fix the squeaky brakes on his car before hopping into the rental with Richard. They drove to Jackson Park and smoked cigarettes as they went back over their plan. So they smoked like chimneys, like they just were chain smoking. When it almost came time for school to let out, they drove back to their own Kenwood neighborhood to find their victim. Oh. They pulled over to the curb, and while Nathan waited, Richard walked to the Harvard School for Boys. He picked out one boy, Johnny Levinson, but when he asked what the boy was doing, Johnny responded that he was going to play baseball with friends before running off. Richard was annoyed. And suggested trying to find a different child when Nathan, oh, excuse me, and trying to find a different child when Nathan whistled for him to come back to the car. 
Nathan suggested some children playing on a different street, and Richard suggested heading over to watch the pickup baseball game and wait. They parked about a block away and walked into a nearby alley to watch. They were too far away to see what was going on and decided they needed Nathan's field glasses, which are kind of like binoculars, uh, that were at his house. So Richard dropped Nathan off and ran to the drugstore to purchase a couple packs of gum, and he checked the telephone book for the kid's address so they'd know what his route home would be. He picked Nathan up and they returned to the alley. They waited in the alley until 4.30, when the boy and a few friends left the field together. When he didn't return to the field, and they didn't follow him, I guess because he was with friends, the two hopped in the rental car and drove the neighborhood. But now they couldn't find little Johnny Levinson. Oh my gosh. Richard was not happy. He'd had his heart set on this small, skinny little nine-year-old for the victim. Nathan suggested they pack it up and try again the next day, and Richard insisted they drive around some more. As they drove, they saw another boy walking alone. This boy had been the umpire in the baseball game the two had watched. It was a boy Richard knew well, his second cousin, 14-year-old Bobby Franks, who he'd played tennis with just the day before. No! Oh, no. I don't want it. I'm going to read you the entire description of him from Murder Among Friends. Quote, Small-boned and just 80 pounds, with dark wavy hair, he liked sports and school and joking around with his friends. His big soulful eyes belied his mischievous streak. But Flora, his mother, found his naughtiness part of his charm. Bobby could be a rascal, but he also possessed a sensitive and generous nature. For the thrill of it describes him this way. Quote, she, his mother, loved his assertiveness, his independent spirit, his ambition. He had already announced that he too, like his sibling, older sibling, would go to Dartmouth and then would study for the law. He was a popular boy at school, a keen tennis player, and an avid golfer. He had joined with some of the other boys in establishing a reading group, and only a few days earlier he had won a debate on capital punishment, arguing for a link between criminality and mental illness. Oh my, no! Bobby was wearing a tan jacket, knickers, wool golf stockings with checkered tops, a necktie, and a tan cap. Richard climbed into the back seat and had Nathan pull up the curb to Bobby. Richard leaned forward and opened the passenger door, asking Bobby if he wanted to ride home. Bobby said no because his house was only two blocks away. Richard pressed him, saying that he wanted to ask Bobby about the tennis racket he'd played with the day before. He said he wanted to buy one for his brother. Bobby hesitated before climbing into the front seat of the rental car. (laughs) Richard asked, you know Leopold, don't you? Bobby glanced at Nathan and said he didn't. Richard asked, you don't mind us taking you around the block? Bobby turned and smiled at his cousin. Certainly not. As Leopold drove down the street, Richard felt around on the back seat for the chisel he planned to use on his cousin. This one doesn't get super duper graphic, but we're getting ready to talk about the details. So like I say, you know, another minute or two, you can jump ahead if you want to, if you don't want to hear that part. So he quickly found the chisel and he waited for the perfect moment to strike. Oh, (laughs) I said it beforehand and then here it is in my notes. (laughs) Nathan made a left turn and Bobby looked toward the front of the car. That's when Richard grabbed him and covered his mouth to keep him from screaming. Richard hit Bobby in the back of the head with a chisel as hard as he could two times, but Bobby stayed conscious. Bobby turned halfway around to face his attacker, trying to shield himself from the blows with his arms. Richard hit Bobby two more times with a chisel, now striking the boy in his forehead. The fourth blow left a large hole in Bobby's forehead. Blood was everywhere, all over the seat, splashed onto Nathan's pants, on the floor of the car. Bobby was holding his head, whimpering and crying as he lay curled up in the passenger seat. Richard couldn't understand why Bobby was still conscious. So he reached down. He pulled Bobby into the back of the car. 
He crammed a rag down Bobby's throat, pushing it down as far as he could before taping the boy's mouth shut. Bobby's whimpers and cries stopped and his body slid to the floorboards. And I think I couldn't find like an autopsy report, but I think he suffocated on the, the because of the rag or whatever the word would be because of the rag. Nathan took them on a 20 minute drive into open country, but it was still too early to dispose of the body safely. It had been six hours since Nathan and Richard had eaten and they were hungry. What is it with these motherfuckers and just going and eating food? Right. Can you, I can't imagine being hungry with a fuck. I mean, like having a dead body. Like even after you do that, like you have a fucking dead body in the car. And you've still never done that before. It's still something new. Like I would just be thrown up everywhere. I'd be so sick to myself. Oh yeah. Fucking anxious. Worried you're going to get caught. I mean, like also you just fucking killed some, I don't know. Anyway. (laughs) So they decided to drive around looking for a place to eat. They landed on the Dewdrop Inn, a roadside convenience store. The owner was getting ready to close up shop, but Nathan made it in time to grab a couple of hot dogs and two root beers. The two ate, and after a while, Nathan got in the car back on the road, headed, got the car head back on the road, headed for Wolf Lake. They planned to leave Bobby's body near a forest preserve southeast of Chicago that had become a safe haven for a variety of birds, which is how Nathan was familiar with mm. it. He had been there previously in his birdwatching adventures. Its location meant that it was remote and secluded. So around this time, panic was beginning to set in at the Frank's house. Dinner had been prepared, and the family was waiting for Bobby to get home so they could sit down to eat. It wasn't like Bobby would be late for dinner, but Bobby's sister, Josephine, and father, Jacob, were trying to calm his mother, Flora's worries. Josephine mentioned that he often played baseball with friends after school and suggested maybe he'd gone to a friend's house for dinner after. Jacob agreed it must be something like that, though he was upset that Bobby was needlessly making his mother worry. (sighs) Um, the family sat down to eat, and once they were done, it became much harder to accept that Bobby had just gone to a friend's house. Jacob decided to call his lawyer and friend, Sam Edelson. Edelson was one of the most influential lawyers in Chicago and had influence with the police. Jacob knew he could count on Edelson to get an investigation going. It was around 9 o'clock when Edelson got to the Frank's house. Jacob and Flora filled Sam in on what was happening, and Sam started making calls. He called the teachers at the school and learned that Bobby had played baseball with friends after school from the PE teacher. The teacher also told Sam that he saw Bobby leave to walk home at about 5.15 p.m. Sam was trying to think of what might have happened to Bobby and thought maybe he went back to the school to grab something he forgot. Maybe the janitor hadn't realized he was in the school and had locked up and left for the day. Oh, my God. Can you imagine the hope then that you might hold on for that when people are like, well, maybe this. Right, right. And you're you're already, oh, my God. Talk about anxiety and being sick to your stomach. So um, Sam and Jacob walked to the school. It was only about a five-minute walk, and they climbed through an open first-floor window. They searched the school inside and out, but there was no sign of Bobby and no clue to where he'd gone. So while that was happening, Nathan and Richard were headed to the dump site. When they arrived, they wrapped Bobby's body in a blanket and carried it through mud toward a drainage ditch that Nathan knew from his birdwatching excursions. When they got close enough, they laid Bobby on the ground and they removed his clothes. Somewhere during all of this, Nathan also removed his own jacket and shoes, which were replaced with a pair of waders so he could get down in the water. Nathan then poured the hydrochloric acid he had purchased on Bobby's face and genitals to keep police from being able to identify the boy. It seemed- oh, I guess because, well, yeah, why on his <laughs> genitals? I was like, well, his sperm. I thought he was going to extract it out of his body. <laughs> no. Right. So I thought that seemed strange, too. So yeah, okay. good question. Um, but I, I found an explanation in For the Thrill of It. It said that Nathan had learned from somewhere, but it didn't say where, that it was possible to identify an individual from the shape of his genitals. 
So I guess that's supposedly why they thought that okay. they should cut, they should get rid of that. Fingerprints were being used at this point in criminal cases, but APHIS, which is the system how they, you know, can put them all in and link everything together, wasn't created for almost another 60 years. Oh. So I don't know if maybe that wasn't a well-known method, maybe, because they didn't do anything to get rid of his fucking fingerprints. Just as junk. So. Just as junk. So once that part was done, Nathan jumped into the drainage dish and pulled Bobby's body in after him. He then tried to shove the body into the drainage pipe, but the top pipe was too narrow. He struggled and he pushed him insistently, and finally he was able to get the body in far enough to be like satisfied with it. He climbed out of the ditch and up the embankment and realized he'd left his own jacket and shoes down by the ditch. He asked Richard to bring them up, and Richard obliged. As he headed up the embankment, Richard heard a metallic clink on the gravel and stopped to look around with a flashlight, but he couldn't find anything, and he just assumed he imagined it. Oh, no. We'll talk about that later. Uh, So on the way home, the boys stopped at a drugstore to purchase postage, including special delivery postage so that their letter would be delivered the next day, for the ransom note, and to check the phone book in the phone booth to get the Franks' address, because they don't apparently don't fucking know his own cousin's address and where to send this. So Nathan wrote it on the envelope for the ransom note, and the note was dropped in the nearest mailbox two blocks away. Next, the two went to the empty lobe home where they burned Bobby's clothes and hid the blood-soaked blanket behind the greenhouse. It said they were missing one of his socks, but I didn't find anything else about that, so I'm going to note it here in case it comes up later. And why would you burn the clothes but not burn the blanket? You fucking burn everything. Why would you leave something? They So they decided that. I apparently didn't note it, but they said it because it was so much blood in it. They were afraid that it would, like, leave a smell in the air, and they would okay. know. I think the, the clothes didn't have as much, I guess, which okay. is, you would think they would, but I guess maybe because the blanket was probably wrapped, wrapped around, around his head. him, yeah. Uh, so now it was time to set the ransom wheels turning. The boys went to a Walgreens, maybe a couple of miles from their homes, and Nathan called the Franks home. He asked for Bobby's father, who was still out searching, and he ended up on the phone with Bobby's mother. Flora was worried sick. The other children had gone to bed, and most of the staff had too. The only person with Flora was a maid who answered the call. Nathan asked for Mr. Franks, but after the explanation that he wasn't home, he was given Mrs. Franks. Flora would later say it was, quote, more of a cultured voice than a gruff voice. Makes sense. We're talking about a fucking Mm -hmm. 19-year-old rich kid. Uh, On the other end of the line, Nathan told her, quote, This is Mr. Johnson. Your boy has been kidnapped. We have him, and you need not worry. He is safe. Mm. But don't try to trace this call. We must have money. We will let you know tomorrow what we want. We are kidnappers, and we mean business. If you refuse us what we want or try to report us to the police, we will kill the boy. Nathan then hung up, and the two returned to the Leopold home to hang out for a while before leaving to take Richard home. On the way, Richard realized the chisel was still in his pocket. He threw it out the car window like a dumbass, literally in his own neighborhood, like an even bigger dumbass. <laughs> With your fingerprints all over it. What the fuck? How stupid are you? Remember that comment I made about how the teacher said he wasn't a mm-hmm. genius? I may have been correct. In the Frank's house, Flora had fainted when the call disconnected. Within 10 minutes, Jacob and Sam returned to the Frank's home where they found the maid on the floor holding Flora, who she'd revived with spirits of ammonia. Oh, my gosh. The parents were relieved that their son was still alive, which is fucking bullshit. Oh, now, not only no. did they have this hope, now you've given them this sense of, not, I'm not security because their son is still kidnapped, but 
the sense of security and then that's going to be taken from them again because you have already murdered their son. Oh my God. It would be bad enough if you were just planning it. But but they're also unsure of exactly how to proceed. Sam called the telephone company to put a trace on incoming calls even though they had been told not to do so. They went back and forth about what to do next deciding finally at 2 a.m. So this is like four hours later that they should involve the police because Jacob couldn't keep sitting there waiting for the phone to ring. Sam was good friends with influential people because he was influential uh, on the police force. So they felt it was a waste not to put those resources to use. They went to the station. Excuse me. Sorry. And the lieutenant they spoke with offered to send detectives out to search for Bobby. Sam kind of went back and forth in his head, partly because if this was all a prank, his reputation could be ruined. Especially considering he'd been involved in politics uh-huh. and kind of hoped to do it again. And then in the end, he said, maybe they should wait to do anything until the morning because they needed to be careful in case Bobby had been kidnapped. Or Ultimately, he made the right decision probably. But uh, Nathan then hung up and the two returned to the Leopold home to... Oh, wait. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> I copied and pasted that. I forgot to delete it. Sorry. So let's try that one more time. Pretend I didn't do that. The next day (laughs) at the Lobe home, Richard and Nathan scrubbed the inside of the car to remove any traces of blood. As they cleaned, the chauffeur noticed the two spoiled ass rich boys doing actual work and wondered what the fuck was going on. So true. He went out to ask if he could help and Richard declined the help saying they were just about finished. He told the chauffeur that the stains were from spilled wine because the two had been out bootlegging. And they were trying to clean the mess before the parents went mm-hmm. He instructed England not to say anything. Fuck it. You spoiled little shit. You're t- telling a grown-ass adult, don't say anything. He's probably going to listen. Right? These two evil geniuses had typed another letter that they planned to tape to the inside of a litter bin, it said, which I'm guessing they meant to like a dumpster. Uh, obviously, it was some kind of trash can. So they planned to call Jacob Franks. To direct him to the dumpster to find the letter. Then the letter would direct him to a phone booth. Okay. Or I don't even think it was a phone booth. Actually, I think it was a drugstore. You know, the phone there. Where they'd call him to tell him to get on a specific train. On the train, he'd find another letter telling him to throw the money out of the window at a specific spot. Nice and convoluted. Only they couldn't get the tape to stick to the metal lid of the dumpster. (laughs) So they skipped that part. And while Richard got on the train to drop the instruction letter for Bobby's dad, Nathan called a cab to the Frank's home and then called the home. Sorry, I was like, wait a minute, what? Uh, when Jacob Franks got on the phone, Nathan told him a cab was on the way to take him to a drugstore. After he hung up, I guess he went and picked Richard up, and they headed to a different pay phone closer to the money drop location. On the way, they passed a newsstand, and they noticed the headline on the early edition of the Chicago Daily Journal. Body had already been found. Oh <gasps> no! It wasn't. I mean, yes. Yes. But I mean, it wasn't identified yet. But Richard uh, said there was no reason to go through with the ransom plot now. Nathan, however, wasn't ready to let it go. They called the drugstore. So wait a minute. So did the parents know? Then I'm that, ready to tell you that. Uh, You're so ahead of me. <sighs> you so on it. So they called the drugstore, but it was no use. Jacob Franks wasn't there. That morning, so we're going to talk about the body now, how it was found. That morning, a man named Tony Minky that lived near the Forest Reserve was on his way home from work, walking, and he took a different route home so he could take, run a quick errand. He passed a large ditch on his left, and when he glanced over, he realized the sun was shining directly onto a foot sticking out of the drainage pipe. He stopped to get a closer look, 
went down into the ditch and saw a child's naked body lying face down in a foot of muddy water. <gasps> he looked around for help and saw four railroad workers on a hand car traveling in his direction. He climbed out of the embankment and flagged the men down, telling them what he'd found. The group pulled the body out of the drainage pipe and flipped it onto its back. From the wounds on Bobby's head, it was clear that he'd been murdered. There were also scratches running from his shoulders to his butt. Mm. I don't know what those are from yet or if we'll figure that out, but felt like it should go in there. Uh, the men also noted copper staining on the mouth, chin, and genitals. So the description oh, makes me yeah. think that the acid didn't really do the damage that they expected it to do. And my guess is that's because they put his ass in water. Yeah. Uh, so I searched what to do if you get hydrochloric acid on your skin, and the instructions said to flush the area with water for 15 minutes. So my assumption is that when they put him face down in the water, it diluted the acid or washed it away enough that it didn't destroy the evidence. But I'm not sure. Just kind of debate. They mm-hmm. weren't saying that it was like melted or deformed, you know, anything like that. So they just said the copper coloring. So I told Raja that part. And he said, this is a quote from my husband, if you don't know who Raja is, my husband. The problem with being smart is that you don't bother to find out if there's anything you don't know. I was like, I feel like like that also applies to stupid people. Mm -hmm. If you think you know something, you just don't bother to learn whether or not you're wrong. So I thought that was a very, very good point. Mm -hmm. I like it. He's pretty smart sometimes. So that's why Jacob hadn't shown up to the drugstore. The press had learned of the kidnapping, like from the operators gossiping about the call trace. A reporter had called the Frank's house and talked to Sam about the body that they found that morning. And Sam had said that it couldn't be Bobby because Bobby didn't wear glasses. To be safe, he sent Flora's brother to make sure the body wasn't Bobby. Sam instructed him to call and only say the word yes if the body was Bobby so that Flora wouldn't overhear the conversation. It was only 30 minutes later that Sam received the call and the one word he was hoping he wouldn't hear. Yes, the body was Bobby Franks. Sam quietly told Jacob, and before Jacob could even process what he'd just been told, the phone rang. It was Nathan calling about the cab. (laughs) O-M-G. So, he I mean, he was still in shock when the phone rang. Like He didn't know. So he's on the phone with this kid, and this kid's like, hey, I've called a cab to your house. It's going to take you to this drugstore, blah, 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 and just hangs up the phone, and Jacob's just sitting there like, uh, 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 what, what? I mean, hasn't even processed Yeah. <sighs> By the time Sam wrestled over what they should do, whether it was possible that the body was misidentified, and whether or not there was still time to save little Bobby's life, Jacob had forgotten the address of the drugstore he was supposed to go to. <gasps> no! Oh my so, gosh. There's no way no. it would have helped, but <sighs> it's heartbreaking. And what about those glasses? What about you know, those glasses? The ones that Bobby never wore a day in his life. So one of the railroad workers, Paul Korf, had the thought that if the boys' clothes were nearby, they should gather them up to give to police. He searched the crime scene, but only found a pair of eyeglasses with tortoiseshell frames. Remember that metallic sound that Richard heard as he was bringing Nathan's jacket up from the ditch? Yeah, that was Nathan's glasses that dropped out of his jacket. Oh my gosh. And that, my spooky humans, is where we're going to stop for tonight. No! Uh, Next week's episode, we will pick up with the investigation, and my plan is to get through the rest of the story in the second episode, but we'll see where we end up, because this one, this was a long episode, so hopefully you guys enjoyed it. It wasn't, like, too much. All right, Holly, what do you think? I need more (laughs) information. 
<laughs> good spot. That was a good. I love it. I love it. Oh, you guys gotta watch. You gotta watch the movie. Yes, watch. The, and I'll, watch I'll the in the next episode. I'll make sure I have like the name of all the movies and all mm-hmm. that stuff. So, good job. Thanks. Did not get my uh, joke together. So you want to do our oh, socials? Yeah, I'll do the things while Holly's looking. So as always, check out our Instagram at Mombies Horror and our Facebook Mombies Horror Podcast for pictures to go with today's episode. Follow us on TikTok at Mombies Horror for fun videos. We are working on ideas for some. I promise you they will be there. So just go follow us now in preparation for those amazing videos you're going to have. If you have, oh my God, I, oh no, I didn't either. Okay, it goes on another page. I was like, I stopped in the middle of a sentence. <laughs> uh, if you have questions or case suggestions, send us an email to mommieshorror at gmail.com. And join the Mommies Discord for conversations and all kinds of fun stuff. We are still working things out, but again, you can come join us in preparation for the fun to be unleashed. If you want to support the podcast monetarily, become a patron of Mobby's Horror on Patreon. You'll get a shout out on an episode as we did on today's episode, access to bonus episodes and other content, early release dates for every episode, and more as we grow. Patrons also get ad-free episodes, and this is airing like five weeks from now, so you guys may already have ads and you may not, but you can have ad-free episodes if we do that. So that's a great bonus as well. If you want to support us in a totally free but equally helpful way, like, comment, rate, review, and share. I know those seem like simple things, but those seemingly small interactions play a big role in getting us in front of more listeners. Share it. Share it. Share it. It's free. It's free. It's free. Tell everybody you and love you us. Love us. All right. Okay. All right. I do not own the rights to these jokes, but it is Mom Jokes with Holly. This one's pretty good. Okay. Did you hear about the homicide in the craft store? I did not. It was gluesome. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. (laughs) All right. All right. Sweet dreams, spookies. Sweet dreams.